Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. We're trying to bring right, education to a place where it can really truly be that cornerstone of democracy where our students have choice. A teacher pushes back on book bans in Oklahoma and has to leave her job. It's Monday, February 6th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. A little later, we'll hear from Summer Boimier, who helped her students find banned books. And Ukraine says Russian troops have taken thousands of Ukrainian children during the war. We'll hear from human rights groups trying to track them down. But first, more than 2,000 people are dead after an earthquake in southeastern Turkey. The tremors shook Turkey, Syria, and Cyprus, and could be felt as far away as Israel and Lebanon. NPR's Peter Kenyon is on his way to the hard-hit areas. We caught up with him when he was still in Istanbul this morning. He spoke to Jane Clayson. Peter, thanks for being here. Hi, how are you? So, well, okay. How are you? Um, What are you seeing where you are? Well, I was awoken sometime after four in the morning uh, by uh, the quake. Uh, But I have to say, Istanbul was very much spared the worst of this earthquake. Uh, And it was a big one. Turkey will be dealing with the aftermath for quite some time to come, uh, if history is any guide. Uh, Earthquakes are nothing new to Turkey, but the sheer destructive force of a quake of this magnitude, as you can imagine, is immense. Yeah. So this was a 7.8 magnitude earthquake. Turkey's president, Erdogan, said this was the worst in decades, in at least 80 years. Can you give us a sense of the damage, Peter? Well, it it is being called by some the biggest, by others the second worst earthquake in the past hundred years. Either way, it was hugely destructive. Uh, As you mentioned, it was felt as far north as Lebanon, actually as far south as Cairo, I'm told. Uh, So far, as bad as it is, the toll of this quake, the death toll, is quite a bit lower than the deadly 1999 earthquake. That one left more than 17,000 people dead. Mm. Uh, This is obviously quite a bit lower than that, but officials do expect the toll to keep rising, just as it did after the 99 quake, and so will the number of injured. How high those numbers eventually rise remains one big question. The latest tally I've seen says nearly 10,000 people are known to have been injured in this quake. Nearly 2,500, on the other hand, have been pulled alive from the rubble so far. Uh, That's after more than 2,800 buildings collapsed. Uh, Some people do say there is reason to hope the death toll won't get as bad as it was in 99. Uh, For one thing, building standards were improved in Turkey uh, in between that time and now, and other measures were put in place to help protect human life during a quake. But as officials here have been saying all day long, there is no absolute protection against a 7.8 magnitude earthquake. Mm. There's going to be loss of life. People here are just wondering how great. And of course, the first 72 hours are extremely important. Experts say after that, the chances of survival drop off. We're just seeing and hearing stories of entire buildings just collapsing. Tell us yes. about the infrastructure and, and how, how it looks. Yes, huge buildings just crumbling to the ground, and obviously people trapped in the rubble is is a huge problem here. Uh, one official said, uh, we know quakes don't kill, buildings kill. Mm. So we're also hearing um, – so anyway, that's how the rescue is proceeding so yeah. far. And what are you hearing as far as damage in Syria and Israel and places outside of Turkey? 
Well, certainly uh, Syria definitely is is showing a lot of damage. We're hearing more than 800 dead there. Uh, that combined with the more than 1,500 dead so far in Turkey gives you that uh, 22, 2,300 number we've got so far. And Syria is, of course, where much of the reported damage occurred uh, outside of Turkey, of course. And reports of aftershocks, Peter, serious ones, big ones. How much damage are they causing and how widespread are they? Well, that's a bit interesting. There's some debate about whether the biggest one at 7.5 magnitude was actually an aftershock or a second quake on a different fault line. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't have the answer to that geological question right now, uh, but clearly two magnitude 7.5 or higher events on the same day is a devastating blow to any urban population. Mm -hmm. Turkey's President Erdogan has been updating the country and the world on the situation this morning. What is the latest on what he's saying and the recovery efforts? Well, Erdogan has been calling for aid, and so has Turkey's emergency management agency. Uh, They say there's an urgent need, especially to keep roads open and to keep communications open. Uh, The agency says... Just sending in aid blindly without coordinating with the agency, though, won't help. That will only complicate Turkey's response to the earthquake. Uh, President Erdogan echoed that comment, saying aid sent without the agency's cooperation, quote, will hurt the situation. And what sort of international aid is flooding in at this point? What help is being offered? Well, one interesting thing, Turkey's had a lot of tensions rising with its NATO allies because of its opposition to having Sweden join the bloc. But NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says members of the alliance are mobilizing support uh, even now to deal with help Turkey deal with the quake's destruction. He said they will have full solidarity with Turkey in the aftermath of this terrible quake. And without question, the death toll will rise, Peter, no? We should expect the death toll to keep rising, yes. Uh, this was an extremely powerful seismic event in a crowded urban environment. Uh, no guarantee there won't be more uh, quakes to come. Uh, no, no doubt some soon will be starting the long process of trying to identify what lessons can be learned from this disaster that might help Turkey survive with fewer dead and wounded in a future earthquake. That's NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Peter, stay safe and thank you. Thank you. After the break, Scott Tong talks to an English teacher who left her job in Oklahoma after the state's education secretary accused her of not having, quote, Oklahoma values. She's now with the Brooklyn Public Library. Stick around. Bans on books increased across much of the country last year and changed Summer Boimier's life. She taught high school English in Oklahoma, and she showed her students where to find banned books online. Uproar ensued, and Summer Boimier eventually quit. Now she works for the Brooklyn Public Library in New York City, where she helps plan the library's wide-ranging suite of teen programs and events. And Summer joins us now. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. So just to back up, you grew up in Oklahoma, you taught high Mm -hmm. school English in Norman, Oklahoma, and you chose to cover up your school bookshelf with butcher paper and give your students this QR code to gain access to books that have been banned uh, in many school districts. Briefly, how did you come up with that idea in the first place? Um, Well, I would say the idea to cover the shelves, of course, was not mine. It was my school districts. The directive had been given to teachers prior to the start of school that we were to restrict or remove student access 
to our mm. classroom libraries per our state's divisive concepts law, HB 1775. So I, I did exactly what my district asked me to do. I restricted okay. access. Mm. But I also provided a QR code. And I want to ask you a little bit about the reaction. It seems on one side, there were attacks on you. The Oklahoma State Superintendent mentioned teachers indoctrinating students, but, but also folks who came to your side. Yes. Can you talk about the response against you and then the response backing you? Sure. You know, I've been called all kinds of names on the internet. Um, I've mm. had people call for my prosecution and my execution. But I have also had people take that QR code and it's become yard signs, stickers, T-shirts. It has spread, per the Streisand effect, further than I ever could have hoped. And I hope to think so many young people have had access to books they want to read because hmm. of that. Summer, let me ask you about one book that has been banned by many school districts. Sure. The Bluest Eye, the novel mm -hmm. by Toni Morrison back in 1970. It includes elements of abuse pedophilia, sexual assault, incest. Mm -hmm. For a parent who comes to you and says, you know, my 15-year-old doesn't need this at this age, at some level, do you understand where this parent is coming from? Of course I do. And I would say, you know, my, my goal in working with, with any stakeholders, students, parents, guardians, is always collaboration, right? I'm the content expert, the guardian, the parent is, is the kid expert. And, you know, what I would say is I would hope that, you know, the parent or guardian would read the text with their student if, if they have concerns. Ultimately, if they decide that they would like to suggest an alternate or, or request an alternate, I hope that decision is made, again, in conjunction with the student. That is fully within um, their prerogative, but what they don't have the prerogative to do is make that decision for other students. Hmm. Your story seems to end well. You quit your job in Oklahoma, moved to Brooklyn, where, where you're working. But elsewhere for some librarians and teachers, as you know, it is not ending well. One librarian mm -hmm. in western Michigan has been called a pedophile, threatened with phone calls, photographed by strangers. Another in Idaho had Bible verses about judgment shouted at her, people showing up with guns at library board meetings. I imagine right, some of these people are just going to quit. You quit. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, what does Oklahoma lose by losing you? Before I get there, I, I do want to point something out. My story, I would challenge, has not, has not ended well. It's not over. Mm. I mean, I, I lie awake at night. I suffer panic attacks in the middle of the day. I can't listen to interviews or read things that I've done for fear that those rogue tweets are going to come back, right? I'm just run rogue thought away from a breakdown, I don't consider that a good ending. And that's the question then, right? I mean, if teachers either choose to leave, choose not to go into the profession in the first place, system-wide, what is lost in the system? Everything. This public education system that we have nationwide is, is far from perfect and has often been, you know, the source and, and the site of, of, of many atrocities, frankly, frankly. 
But many teachers, myself included, are, are trying to remedy that, right? We're bringing inclusive texts into the classroom. We're prioritizing, right, social emotional learning and culturally responsive education. And we're trying to bring right, education to a place where it can really, truly be that cornerstone of democracy where our students have choice. That is Summer Boimier, a former English teacher in Norman, Oklahoma. She's quit and now works at the Brooklyn Public Library's Teen Initiatives Project Manager. Summer, thanks for the time. Yes, thank you. Coming up, we check in on the war in Ukraine. First, Scott talks to a former Russian energy minister about what impact all those oil and gas sanctions are having on Russia as the war grinds on. Then, Jane speaks with Human Rights Watch about the fate of thousands of Ukrainian kids who have been separated from their families. That's after the break. It has been almost a year since Russia invaded Ukraine. The West responded with sanctions on Moscow on its energy and financial sectors. Our next guest says the sanctions are having a profound effect on the Russian economy. Vladimir Vilov is a former deputy minister of energy in Russia. He is a member of the opposition, and he's left Russia. He joins us from Lithuania. Mr. Vilov, hello. Hello. Great to be with you. When the sanctions began, there was hope that they would pressure Moscow, maybe lead to an end of the war, a pullout from Russian troops. That has not happened. So are the sanctions really working? Uh, I think there was a lot of unnecessarily elevated expectations about immediate effect of sanctions when the war began. Some of those were heated up by Western politicians and political leaders who were, you know, generously giving speeches now and then saying that sanctions will destroy Russian economies. I think these elevated expectations were wrong because Russia did have some accumulated reserves, uh, safety margins. A lot of stuff to resist sanctions have been done uh, since 2014, since the first round of major sanctions after the annexation of uh, Crimea and parts of Donbass. Russia has also been somehow turning to Asian countries, China, India, Turkey, uh, to uh, mitigate the sanctions effect. But despite the fact that it hasn't collapsed, Russian economy is having a lot of difficulties. I mean, you argue that the official data coming out of uh, of Russia understates the challenge, say, with unemployment, etc., perhaps understates inflation, which could be around 16%. How is this faltering economy affecting the daily lives of people in Russia? Well, there's been so much buildup on uh, television that we are resilient and uh, uh, propaganda wasted no time actually mobilizing Russians that we can stand the hardships and so on. So many people would say now that we are withstanding the sanctions okay because, and here's the important part, uh, the food is still in stores. (laughs) To me, I don't think that this is actually a best criteria. If if you look at this is one important factor. Uh, But as a matter of fact, uh, the total inflation over the past few years, it was actually quite high even before the war. But then it broke to highs that we see we haven't seen since uh, 1990s. And 
I think it would be fair to say that on average, uh, Russians in real terms are about 20-25% poorer than they were in 2013 before the annexation of Crimea and before Putin started uh, this first wave of aggression against Ukraine nine years ago. Does this economic pain that you're describing change anything with the Russian military? It is being reported uh, Moscow is preparing for potentially a large offensive coming. Uh, yes, it does influence the uh, situation significantly. What you actually can see on the battlefield uh, today is that Russia does not uh, have the capacity to launch a full-scale uh, offensive across the front line, as we saw a year ago. What they're doing right now are only limited offensives with a high concentration of resources, but the resources are still limited. You worked in the Russian government under Putin in the early 2000s, but later joined the opposition. What did you learn about Vladimir Putin and how he operates by kind of being in his circle? Well, how long is your program? I mean, to, to make the long story short, Putin was very different from any other leaders uh, who came before him because he was like behaving like an organized crime group from day one. He brought a lot of people, his former close affiliates, without any professional background and actually put them into vital positions in, you know, top summit of political power and uh, Russian corporate world and so on. So this really looked like uh, a very focused power grab. Putin since then converted the, the political economic power that he grabbed uh, to actually project his influence globally, trying to redraw borders and change the global rule-based order. Uh, so this is why I think uh, early monitoring of power grabs in fragile democracies, particularly nuclear armed, is very important. Vladimir Vilov is the former Deputy Minister of Energy in Russia, and he spoke to us from Vilnius in Lithuania. Mr. Milov, thanks so much for the time. Thank you. Pleasure being with you. Since the war in Ukraine began, Russian troops have taken thousands of Ukrainian children. That's according to Ukraine's top presidential advisor for children's rights and rehabilitation. Some children fleeing occupied territories have been abducted by the Russians. Other children were taken after their parents were killed or imprisoned, and few have been returned home. Joining us now to explain more is Bill Vanesfeld. He is Associate Director of the Children's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. And we're glad you're with us, Bill. Hi, thanks for having me. Help us understand the scale of this. How many Ukrainian children have been taken to Russia since the war began? We don't actually know the total numbers of Ukrainian kids who were taken to Russia. The Russians have reported it's in the hundreds of thousands, actually. The Ukrainian National Information Service, though, they're reporting more than 16,000. I can't confirm those numbers, but we're pretty confident it is at least in the thousands. Who are these Ukrainian children and, and where did they come from? The cases that I've been trying to follow are children who are actually in children's institutions, often mislabeled orphanages, mislabeled because, in fact, the majority of children who are in these Ukrainian children's facilities have parents 
with full parental rights who were, who were alive and, and fine. The reason the kids were in those institutions in the first place is because the parents were in difficult life circumstances, the children had a disability. Many of those institutions were in areas that came under Russian military control. They were taken over by Russian forces in fighting before those institutions could be evacuated. We've seen reports that at least several thousand children were reported to have been taken from those institutions by Russian forces, not allowed to go through some kind of humanitarian corridor to Ukrainian government-controlled territories, but instead taken away to other places that the Russians were occupying in Ukraine or taken directly to the Russian Federation itself. So what happened to these kids once Russian troops got a hold of them? How were they shipped back to Russia? In many cases, we don't know the exact circumstances in which these kids were taken, but in general, it's very coercive. Soldiers are coming in, you're being taken away, you're not being given any chances, any choices, any options. You know, it's terrifying. And then we do know from some kids who've been able to get out um, that they were lied to, that they were told that they were abandoned. In some cases, Ukrainian volunteers tried to evacuate them. We documented a case where a man took an ambulance who tried to get out of Mariupol with 17 children from a sanatorium, and he was stopped by Russian-affiliated forces. They took the kids away. They took them to Russian-occupied Donetsk, and those kids later wound up taken to Russia where some of them were told that their parents had abandoned them, which was completely false. We also know of kids who were hidden by Ukrainian children's institution directors who didn't want them to be taken away, so they distributed these kids from mm. the institution to the families of staff members who were at the institution so they could pretend they were their own kids or they pretended they had medical conditions so they couldn't travel or didn't have passports or documentation so they couldn't be taken away. Well, Ukraine accuses Russia of genocide here, taking these kids, changing their national identities, making them Russian. Transferring people by force is a potential war crime, right? And it's especially thorny with children who can't give consent. How does Russia explain what's happening here? You're absolutely right that this bears all the hallmarks of the war crime of forcible transfer. When an occupying authority comes into a country, they can't take people and just move them around, much less send them to the home country of the occupying power. Completely very black and white international law war crime and potential crime against humanity. So actually, back in May of last year, the Russian Children's Rights Commissioner, ironically, met with Putin. And as a result of that meeting, the parliament changed a law allowing these Ukrainian children to be given Russian nationality in order that they could be adopted permanently by Russian families. The narrative is that these are children who were left behind by uh, Ukraine. They weren't protected. They needed help. And, you know, so the Russians have come in and are giving them nationality in big ceremonies where, you know, senior officials in the Moscow region will come and give them their plaques. But what's really happening, again, is that many of these kids are not orphans, and under the pretense of saving these children, they're actually separating them from their families, as well as committing the war crime, apparently, of forcible transfer. Right. They're not orphans. And in fact, many of their relatives or guardians actually want them back. Many guardians are desperate to get them back. Very small numbers have been able to be returned to their families. The Ukrainian uh, government is reporting something like 130 have been able to be reunited with their families. But, you know, that is unfortunately a drop in the ocean in terms of the total numbers who've been taken. What is the hope within Ukraine and within agencies like yours that these children will be recovered and returned to their homeland? 
It's not even a question of hope. This is something that has to happen. There needs to be a concerted international effort to get these kids back. The big picture is that these are kids, and some of these are tiny kids, including infants. There's no possibility of some kind of informed consent here. This is a very clear, grotesquely illegal act. The United Nations could be more vocal, more active on this. The Ukrainian authorities are very, very concerned. They're putting out data uh, all the time. But, you know, those cases are very difficult to verify. So I think the only way to move forward is to continue to focus international pressure on this issue to make it a priority to get these kids back to their families. Bill Van Esfeld is Associate Director of the Children's Rights Division of Human Rights Watch. Bill, thank you so much for helping us understand this really important subject. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Maybe you heard our episode Friday with composer Stephanie Ekonomu. Well, yesterday at the Grammys, she became the first ever winner of a new category for game music. I just want to recognize all of the people who fought tirelessly to bring this category of video game music into existence. Thank you for acknowledging and validating the power of game music. This is truly such an honor. Thank you. Head back in the Here and Now Anytime feed to hear our interview with Ekonomu about her soundtrack for the latest installment in the Assassin's Creed series, how she drew on black metal to compose for the game's Norse setting, and why she thinks game music deserves more attention. And if you need to catch up on what else happened at the Grammy Awards last night, we've got all that at hereandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by Thomas Daniellian, Jill Ryan, Catherine Swartz, and Hafsa Qureshi. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Peter O'Dowd, Jill Ryan, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.